Welcome back once again to our Driving the Deal podcast. I'm Brian Fortune from the Farragut Square Group, which is part of McDermott Plus Consulting. Uh, and joining me, Chris Whirling, partner in our Chicago office and a very active partner on many uh, healthcare transactions. Today, we're also joined by our senior analyst in the DC office, Holly Stokes, who will be uh, joining us on the Q&A. And special guest this week is Brian Stimson, partner in the DC office and uh, a subject matter expert and active litigator on uh, the greatest drama going on in Washington the last several months. No, I am not talking about the leak from the Supreme Court uh, over the uh, Roe v. Wade uh, potential decision, but CMS's implementation or attempted implementation of the No Surprises Act. Thanks, Brian. As you know, I joined McDermott in January of 2021 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where I was the the principal deputy general counsel of the department, which in plain English means I was the second banana and sometimes the the first banana and have since joining McDermott worked a lot on many of the same kinds of rule challenges and investigations and other litigation that I, I, I handled when I was at the department. And one of um, those matters, I've, I've been representing the Association of Aeromedical Services and their challenge to the implementing regulations for the No Surprises Act, which has been a, a timely subject and, and one I'm, I'm happy to talk about today. So with that, Brian, we'll have you lead off with telling us just a little bit about what you've been up to, uh, and then obviously uh, tell us what you're, you're able to talk about and maybe some things that you're not going to address. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Brian. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be with you. As you, you indicated, I've been involved in the litigation related to the No Surprises Act. I represent the Association of Air Medical Services in their challenge to uh, interim final rules, parts one and two. And that, that case is in D.C. It's been consolidated with a case filed in D.C. by the American Medical Association and the American Hospital Association. And uh, so I'm a bit constrained in what I can say about the particulars of that case, but uh, this is a an area where there's been a lot of litigation, and uh, I expect there'll be a lot more regulatory activity in the future. So we're only partway through the drama, you might say. And in terms of the overall litigation landscape, in addition to the Ames case, there's six cases pending. Uh, there's the uh, TMA case in the Eastern District of Texas, which has been decided at the district court level and appealed to the Fifth Circuit by the government. There's the ASEP case in Chicago, which has been stayed. There's the Holler case in Long Island, which is on a PI track. There's the GSEP case in Atlanta. It's been stayed. And then within the past couple of weeks, uh, cases have been filed in the Eastern District of Kentucky by PHI and Impact, which are air ambulance providers, and then uh, LifeNet, which is another air ambulance provider in the Eastern District of Texas. So Brian, maybe rewind for us here and that's a lot of litigation, especially for me and my uh, private equity investor colleagues. That sounds pretty frightening, <laughs> the amount of litigation. But taking a step back, maybe you could give us an overview of the No Surprises Act and you know, kind of what led to the current situation. 
Sure. So the No Surprises Act was a component of the Consolidated Appropriations Act that was signed into law by President Trump in December of 2020. It was percolating in Congress for many years and in its various iterations and in its final form get at the issue of surprise billing meaning the billing of patients for out-of-network services when they, they may or may not recognize that the provider is out-of-network. The most common situation where that scenario arises is in the delivery of emergency services. The Act also gets at situations where in-network hospitals provide care together with out-of-network physicians and and the patients are unaware that the physicians are out of network, and it gets at air ambulance services as well. And the Act does a few things. The first thing is that it poses a prohibition on the balanced billing of patients in those situations. It establishes a mechanism for determining their cost sharing in those situations, establishes a methodology for determining how much providers will get paid, and then it creates a dispute resolution process for adjudicating payment disputes. And the dispute resolution process is conducted by independent dispute resolution entities that are basically arbitrators that are made available through organizations credentialed by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. So it sets up an entire regime, stat federal statutory and regulatory regime that works together with state laws to hold patients harmless and create a a process by which out-of-network payment disputes get resolved. Genesis of the, the current raft of litigation uh, is, is the implementing regulations for the federal statute. And those implementing regulations came out in two pieces, part one and part two. Part one established a, a methodology for determining something called the Qualified Payment Amount, or QPA, which is a median network contracted rate and is the basis for determining patients' cost sharing under the rule. And then in part two, the regulation established how the arbitrators are to weigh the QPA, um, among other factors, in reaching decisions about the amount of payment. And in all these lawsuits, the, the core argument is that weighting of the QPA by the arbitrators as prescribed in the regulations is not something that Congress contemplated and is contrary to the, the statute. In the air ambulance cases, the plaintiffs also allege that the some of the, the ways in which the QPA is determined are uh, arbitrary and capricious and need to be vacated and sent back to the agency. It seems like all these lawsuits zeroed in on on this idea that, you know, there's this defined QPA and arbitrators should have to weight that more importantly than any other factor. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the heart of it. The statute lays out a number of factors that arbitrators are to consider and the regulation comes in above the statute and says that the arbitrators have got to give the QPA presumptive weight or special weight. And it skews the arbitrator's consideration of all the factors in favor of the QPA which the providers generally allege is um, beneficial to plans and issuers. And that's really the, the heart of a lot of these cases. And just to back up just a little bit to understand why the QPA is such an important figure, is it right that in the first interim final rule, they were setting that as the median contracted rate for plans? So the, the statute defines the QPA as a, a median contracted rate. 
And then what the regulation does is establishes rules for determining what rates count when you're determining the median and how you go about determining the median. And in the Ames case and in in some of the other cases that have been filed, the concern is that that gloss that the agency put on the determination of the QPA further skews it in favor of plans and issuers in a way that Congress didn't contemplate. So it's it's kind of a double whammy. You've got a methodology for determining a median that is arbitrary and capricious, and then you have a rule that requires the arbitrators to give that, that defective QPA special weight which compounds the problem. So the key takeaway for providers is that the risk for them is that the price that they would receive or reimbursement that they would receive from certain out-of-network patients would be significantly lower than a a fair reimbursement amount. Is that the way some of the providers that are closely interested in this are looking at it? Yes. Yeah, that's spot on. Mm -hmm. The, the big concern that the providers are articulating in, in all of their court papers is that a QPA is driving down out-of-network reimbursement to levels that will jeopardize access to care and that weren't contemplated by Congress in the statute. And a, a related issue is, is that the QPA is, is effectively functioning as a ceiling in the market. Plans and issuers are saying that if providers don't accept the, the QPA as a network rate, the plans and issuers will just pay it as an out-of-network rate. And so it's it's having, a, at least from the provider perspective, it's having an impact on efforts to negotiate in-network contracts. It's not productive. Brian, is this impacting certain provider groups more than others? From my perspective, we've seen private equity historically very active in hospital-based services like anesthesia, ER, air ambulance, and so forth, other patient transport. That seems to be where it has a disparate impact. Maybe you could compare that for us with the impact on, you know, for example, GI platform or a dermatology platform, the non-hospital-based specialties. It definitely impacts in the physician world, emergency department physicians and hospital-based physician practices like anesthesiologists. And your instincts are right that it it doesn't have as as much of an impact on physician practices that are are typically in a an office setting because they're rarely going to be in the hospital. And when an out-of-network physician is in an in-network hospital providing a non-emergency service, that's when the act takes hold. It also affects air ambulance. There are exceptions that are made to the balanced billing prohibition if you get notice and consent. Those exceptions aren't available to certain types of providers like emergency medicine physicians and anesthesiologists and air ambulance providers. So there's definitely a focus on many of the provider types that have have seen high levels of investment by private equity. And in fact, the government uh, makes a point to, to underscore those investments in a lot of its pleadings and critiques the, the involvement of private equity and, and flags it as a reason for the, the passage of the law. I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with that. I'm, I'm just saying it's, it's definitely in the mix in the litigation as well. So let's try to give a brief recap of kind of the evolution of the regulatory side and that we followed the legislation very closely. I thought the legislation was a hard fought compromise that 
you know, got a lot of buy-in from both providers and payers reluctantly. Very clear from that debate that the arbitration would be essentially a neutral process where you could consider many factors. And then you had an uh, interim final rule that came out that moved the goalposts and said, no, no, it's going to be weighted towards this QPA. But then, as we noted, there have been numerous lawsuits that are in the system, which you would expect, given that the reg kind of is, is quite a bit different from what people understood to be congressional intent. But CMS has continued to modify the reg by putting out not one, but another two, and then a third interim final rule. And and I understand, Brian, there's there's a fourth final rule coming as well. What can you what can you say about this kind of evolution? Are they trying to make it better or are they just trying to dig in and justify their initial position? It's um it's a great question and and we don't know. What we do know is that the government has filed a motion for a stay in the TMA case, which is on appeal and in its its motion for a stay, it's told the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that the government expects to issue final rule in early summer that will address the issues in the TMA case, which relate to the QPA presumption. So what we know right now is that the government expects to issue a rule in a few months that's going to, in some way, shape, or form, address the QPA presumption. But we don't have a, a good sense about how it will address that issue or whether it will address additional issues because the government's in the midst of its deliberative process. And I think regardless of what the rule says, you're going to you're going to see the courts grapple with the content of the rule because it's going to impact the the cases and probably see more litigation activity at some point once that happens. It's interesting thinking about, you know, where this level of risk is if you are interested in investing in one of these sectors that we've talked about being really impacted by the No Surprises Act and the outcome of these court cases. One thing we've seen a lot in our diligence is that because the act was designed in a way that it's not intended to supersede state law, and because states really were at the forefront of pushing some of these No Surprise legislation through before the federal government, in states where there already was existing laws on the book that were deemed comprehensive and protecting against balanced billing, that there's more of an appetite for investing in these sectors because there's viewed less of a risk. Is that a fair categorization or are you seeing that there's fears that this would somehow supersede state law? Great question. I don't, you know, I don't have my finger on the pulse of the investor community because I'm a I'm a humble litigator. <laughs> but what I would say is, as you point out, the act preserves state law. The states continue to pass surprise billing laws. They they work in tandem with the federal law, and they all tend to have the same basic structure. They prohibit balance billing. They contain patient protections, and they include a dispute resolution process. And in that sense, there is some, some continuity across the states and between the states and the feds. And really, the rubber meets the road in the dispute resolution process. That's what the all the litigation is about. If a state supplies a method for resolving out-of-network payment disputes, then that's typically going to be the method that controls. So I think you've got to keep your eye on the ball at the state level because that can really affect the dispute resolution procedures, which is 
where a lot of the action is as we see the, the federal process now stood up and moving forward. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess as we're moving forward with going into these dispute resolutions, while this question sort of is lingering in the air, how are providers approaching that? How are they dealing with this question of waiting for the next rule and waiting to see how these courts uh, resolve the issue? Providers are, are having to navigate amidst the uncertainty of the court decisions and do what they can to avail themselves of the processes that presently exist. So as the clock ticks on payment disputes, they have a choice of either pursuing appeals and IDR or not. What I'm seeing is a lot of providers moving forward under the process that exists today, even though they they believe that it is prejudicial to them and is causing them harm because it utilizes a, a QPA that's flawed and that's given undue weight. And I'm seeing varying degrees of preparation for independent dispute resolution and a variety of strategies deployed based on the, the size of the provider and the kinds of services they provide and the cultures of their organizations. I think when you, you boil it down in an IDR proceeding, the plan is going to make arguments about the QPA and how they believe it's a market-based mechanism. And the provider is going to argue that the QPA is flawed and that they provide a high-quality service and that they they need to be able to recoup their costs in a, in a reasonable margin in order to continue to maintain access to services. And those arguments will get teed up um, as we get deeper into 2022 and and still grapple with the uncertainty around the litigation and the rulemaking. Brian, can you play scenarios with us? Scenario one would be the administration finally realizes that, that they're out on a limb beyond the statutory intent, and they modify this through regulation to bring balance to the universe again. Scenario two is they lose resoundingly in court, and we get basically the same regulatory result. Scenario three is 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 what? We we have endless litigation kind of back and forth over this and, and maybe implementation is delayed. If you would, maybe we could speculate. That is a big crystal ball. And you're right that that there are a lot of different pathways the public could be walking down in the next six to nine months. If the department or the departments accept the holding of the TMA case and apply it to all provider types in the final rule, then that resolves most of the issues in the litigation. Not all of them. There are still issues related to the methodology for determining the QPA, and there's a, a few other issues in, in a couple of the cases that, that would be left. And I think then you have a, a much cleaner trajectory for for the healthcare sector. If the administration issues a final rule that looks a lot like its interim final rules, then that's going to get teed up in the courts and there's going to be fights either at the appellate or the district court level or both about whether that approach is a lawful one. And and I would expect that to take quite a while to resolve across all the different venues where the cases are pending. And then if the government issued a final rule that was somewhere in the middle, I think you would probably still end up with the same kind of a scrum because there would be disagreements about 
about whether a middle ground is lawful, and that too would have to get resolved through the courts. So while investors and operators and consumers all have a shared interest in certainty and predictability, I think that what we're probably looking at is, at least for six to nine months, continuing uncertainty as the the regulatory process and related litigation unfolds. Thank you. Does that mean that the provisions of the regulation will be not implemented during that time? Or are we looking at kind of a, a stasis where nothing's going on? That is a also a big crystal ball. Uh, and it depends on what the final rule says and what the courts do about it. In a rule challenge, the courts can do a few things if they decide that they want to grant relief. They can issue something called a vocateur, which means they just they just eliminate the rule. It's gone. It's toast. doesn't exist anymore. Um, and if there's a vocateur, then there's no regulation left. If uh, they don't issue a vocateur, sometimes they issue an injunction. Injunction can be the functional equivalent of a vocateur, or it can operate a bit differently. And sometimes injunctions and vocateurs are modified on appeal. But absent those kinds of grants of relief, the existing regulations will will continue to truck along until there's some kind of change. More uncertainty, unfortunately. Uh, We teed this up by saying it was one of the greatest nerd dramas unfolding in DC. And um, you've made it clear, Brian, that uh, that was a correct assessment. Yes, I think nerd drama is is an apt uh, characterization. For our listeners, though, the interaction with the existing state laws is very interesting and the continued uncertainty you know makes it a bit of a challenge are there providers other than the hospital based providers that this might impact i'm thinking about some of our provider platforms that have significant surgery center assets in for example the eye care and gastroenterology spaces are those providers you know starting to advocate and think about this and the impact on on their business as well. I've seen those types of providers take a greater interest in implementation of other parts of the act unrelated to QPA and dispute resolution because um, their interests are 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 going to be implicated when out of network physicians physicians are delivering services at the facilities that they operate. And so they've they've got to comply with some of the consumer protections in the act, and those are continuing to evolve uh, both legally and operationally. I don't think that the fight around the QPA and dispute resolution will be as material to them going forward because the only time it's going to arise is is when they've got a an employed physician who's delivering care at another facility. So I think they're they're actually well positioned amidst all this uncertainty. Well, Brian, that was very, very illuminating. Uh, obviously, the way this is going, we, we may be talking about this again uh, and again, depending on how long it takes for, for these issues to resolve. But I wanted to thank you on behalf of all of us. Uh, I think this was, uh, was very informative. Thanks, Brian and Chris, for having me on. It's been uh, great to talk with everyone. And uh, I'm always happy to answer questions. I find this stuff incredibly interesting and want to be helpful. So if, if you have uh, a question or something you'd like to kick around, feel free to reach me at B-S-T-I-M-S-O-N, B. Stimson, at mwe.com. Or you can call me at 202-756-8477 about the NSA or 
or really anything involving uh, government litigation or investigations. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Uh, Our final thought, please join us again soon as we will be uh, covering a a range of topics. Chris will be delving in with me on uh, antitrust issues that have been uh, quite much ado of late in the healthcare arena. Stay tuned and thank you again, as always. Thanks again for joining us today. If you would like additional information about McDermott's private equity practice or how we help investors in the healthcare services space, check out our website at pe.mwe.com. If you ever have any questions, you can, of course, reach me directly at kwerling, W-E-R-L-I-N-G, at mwe.com. We'll talk to you soon. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.